Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you hear His Word today. I want to say a quick welcome to those of you who are here today and for those of you who are joining us online and on TV, those of you who call Bible Center Church your home, thank you uh, for being with us. Also want to say a welcome to those of you who may be new. Uh, if you're new and we haven't yet had the privilege of meeting, if I haven't had the privilege of meeting you, uh, I'm Matt, the lead pastor. I would love to meet you next time you're here. Uh, we look forward to seeing how God does a work uh, in your life. Today we launch a new series entitled Crafted, Crafted, and for the next five weekends we're going to be looking at different aspects of God's creative work. So today we're doing an overview of the doctrine of creation and we're going to see how God has created all things. Next week we're actually going to see how that God created the angels. I'm looking forward to that message, an entire message totally on angels. And then the week after that uh, is a message on demons, how that God created the demons. We'll be saying more about that ahead of time. And then after that will actually be a, a message on race, racism, and the glory of God. Something that's on a lot of people's minds these days. What does the Bible say about how God created uh, the human race and God created the various uh, races and ethnicities that we see in the world today? And then lastly in this series, the fifth message will actually be about what went wrong with God's creation. The title of it will be, Why Do We Need Christmas? And it's going to be all about how that God's creation came into a desperate need of a Savior. So it'll set us up for the Christmas season very, very well. I want to encourage you to try to go five for five. See if you can go five for five uh, in this series. Uh, all of them, will, of course, with a goal of drawing your heart closer uh, to the Creator. But today I want to begin by asking you a question about something that you've done, something that you've built. Here's the question. Have you ever created, built, designed anything in your life? Have you ever created, built, designed anything in your life? I believe that everyone under the sound of my voice today has created, built, or designed something. Maybe the thing that you've built was something for work. Maybe part of your job is to actually create, to craft things for the community. Or, or maybe it's more of a hobby for you. Maybe your job, you don't see it so much as creating something, but you have a hobby that you enjoy that actually builds, uh, that improves, that creates something. More than ever today, since the launch of the Industrial Revolution, men and women are looking for opportunities to work with their hands in ways that are meaningful, excellent, and beautiful. In a world where many of us press buttons or we type on computers for a living, creating something tangible can feel very rewarding. Thankfully, social media has sparked a revival in the way we all express creativity. Collaboration and craft are the new norm of our day. For some, it's Pinterest. For others, it's YouTube. For others, it's Instagram and so on. But again, I want to ask today, why do we enjoy making, crafting, designing things? 
Even if you're not someone who enjoys working with your hands, why is it that when you're done with a project, whether you wanted to do it or not, why is it that when you're done, you have this overwhelming sense of satisfaction? Whether it be building a house or building a birdhouse, building a car or building a model car, putting together a solid oak bookcase or an Ikea bookcase, why do we enjoy making and crafting things? That's the question I'm going to answer in this message. And I think the Bible, I'm confident the Bible has the answers. Let me go ahead and give you the big idea today. Here's today's big idea, the main point. The creation story is essential to the gospel story. The creation story is essential to the gospel story. In the New Testament, when you, often when you hear or read a New Testament writer, a teacher, or preacher explain the gospel, they often start with the truth of creation. I like to say that the doctrine of creation, the teaching of creation, is kind of like a Jenga game. If you pull out the doctrine of creation, the whole gospel crumbles. Because without a creator... There's no need for a Savior. There's no possibility for a Savior as well. So first we're going to look today at some non-negotiables. What are some non-negotiables? What are some things uh, that, what are parts of the creation story are non-negotiable for Bible believers? What kind of things are essential to the faith? What truths around creation are core to the faith? Well, number one, This is core. It's non-negotiable. God, who is distinct from his creation, created the world out of nothing. God is distinct from his creation, and he created the world out of nothing. You might ask, what's the big deal about God creating the world out of nothing? What's the big deal about him being distinct from creation? Well, the big deal is that today, and more and more we see this, that there are major world religions that teach that God or their version of God is actually part of creation. In other words, that God is part of the trees, that God may be literally be the trees, or that there's a spark of divinity, they say, in all of us. But those statements clearly contradict the Bible. God lives outside of time, space, and matter. Look with me at 1 Kings, 1 Kings 8, 27. Will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. So God is outside of time, space, and matter But yet God chose to intersect. God chose to actually create time, space, and matter. So it's not that he's distant from time, space, and matter. It's just that he existed before it. He created it and is actually not part of it. Now look look with with, with me in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, there's time. God created the heavens, there's space, and the earth, that's matter. Now, is there any way for any of us to fully wrap our minds around those truths? I would submit to you there's no way we're going to do it. For me today to try to describe God to you would be kind of like Macbeth or Hamlet trying to describe Shakespeare to you. 
right? So Shakespeare was the creator. He was the writer. They were characters in his story. They were connected to Shakespeare, but there's no way they could wrap their minds around the author. And there is no way we can wrap our minds around God. But we do know this. God is distinct from his creation, and he created the world out of nothing. Number two, God created the world good and for his glory. God created the world good and for his glory. The greatest witness today of the glory of God, of the raw, unbridled glory of God, is creation itself. God has given us creation to remind us of his glory and his goodness. I love Psalm 19.1. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Now here in West Virginia, the, the state where our church is, there is a lot of evidence of the glory of God. And if you're not watching or listening from here, I'm sure there are other places that you, you're aware of. But here in our state, I'm thinking about the New River Gorge. When you look at this picture, it, it just draws your heart to the glory of God, to think that God made this. And then there's Blackwater Falls in the winter. I've never actually been there when there's been ice. I have been there when there's been snow, but not when there's been ice. But Blackwater Falls in the winter, declaring the glory of God. Then there's Dolly Sods. Many of us have been to Dolly Sods uh, north of us. Just a beautiful part of our state. It's like stepping back in time thousands of years. Uh, Dolly Sods, beautiful, but it declares the glory of God. Thankfully, all of creation is intended not only to declare his glory, but also his goodness. In Genesis 1 and 2, the first two chapters of the Bible, for nine occasions, nine times, God says that his creation is good. And even though we live in a fallen world after Adam and Eve sinned, and we live in a world of even our own sin, thankfully, even this world still bears the fingerprints of the goodness of God. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 4. This is in our age. This is in our day and age. Still, Paul says, everything God created is good, and today, at this moment, Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. God created the world good and for his glory. Now there's one more thing that's, not, that's essential. It's non-negotiable. It's core uh, that God wants us to, to wrap our minds around or to at least believe if we can't fully understand. And that is number three. The third non-negotiable is this. Adam and Eve were humanity's first parents, created in God's image, and are historical figures who really did disobey God in the Garden of Eden. Now, there's a lot of material here, and there's even more material, two or three times more, in your notes. And so I would encourage you to go to our series page. Go to the crafted page right there on the homepage of BibleCenterChurch.com. And there at the bottom, you'll actually see the bulletin with my sermon notes. And, and there's a plethora of verses for all of these points. But God wants us to see that Adam and Eve are historical figures affirmed throughout the Bible. 
Think of all the times. It's not just like Adam and Eve are mentioned in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and then they're forgotten about. But actually, they're affirmed as being literal people over and over again. Luke in the New Testament affirmed Adam and his historical genealogy recorded in Luke 3.38. Paul affirmed Adam in Acts 17.26 when he said, Through one man, Adam, God made all nations. Paul discussed the relationship between Adam and Eve in 1 Corinthians 11, 7 through 12. And then Jesus affirmed the reality of Adam and Eve in Matthew 19, 3 through 5. There are two major doctrines, the doctrine of salvation and connected to it, the doctrine of of resurrection. That in the New Testament, Paul, in both occasions, Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, Paul bases both of those truths on the reality of a literal Adam. Both of those passages. And then in seven other spots, I didn't know it until this week, studying for this message, but in seven other locations in the New Testament, it confirms the historicity of the sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. It speaks of them as literal men and women, a very real family who made a very real choice in a very real garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were humanity's first parents, created in God's image, and are historical figures who really did disobey God in the garden of Eden. Now, why is it important for us to believe this truth? Why is it so important for us to to wrap our minds, to by faith at least trust the Word of God? Well, the answer is this. The creation story is essential to the gospel story. Over and over again, again, the two are as one. And so God invites us to believe the true creation story because the gospel is also the true story of redemption. Now, before we go on, what I want to do is take just a second and talk about the parts of the creation story over which Bible-believing Christians can disagree. There are aspects of the creation story that good Bible-believing Christians, gospel-loving people, disagree. These would be called negotiable, debatable, non-essential, peripheral, or, or definitely not core. So, what are those parts of the of the creation story that Christians can disagree. First of all, the age of the earth. Christians can disagree and still like each other and still be okay about the age of the earth. Unfortunately, the earth did not come with a manufacturing date or a tag like the tag on your mattress. Centuries ago, Bible scholars began to try to at least estimate the age of the earth by looking at the Bible and using all the genealogies to say where it says this person begat so-and-so and this person begat so-and-so and this person begat so-and-so and lived so many years. And so there are a number of genealogies in the Bible. And so there have been scholars who've tried to go all the way back to Adam and say, well, if you add this number plus this number plus this number, it actually gives you the age of the earth. And I think that's a noble effort. I can, I can commend the effort. It's certainly a lot more math than what I want to do. The problem is there's a number of different chrono- chronologies that don't match up. Or it's like this one 
Actually, over here, when it says this man begat so-and-so, it's actually talking about his great-great-grandson. You see, the problem in the Hebrew is that with the word for father and grandfather and great-grandfather and great-great-grandfather and so on are often the same word. And so it's hard to tell, is this person in this genealogy literally this person's father or is there 10 generations between them? For instance, by way of illustration, I'm a 10th generation West Virginian. My family settled here in Harper's Ferry, back then it was Virginia, in 1727 when Israel Friend was commissioned by Governor Calvert to be an ambassador to the Shawnee. One of the parts I love about our history is that he actually married a, a Shawnee young lady. And back in the day when it was considered scandalous for ethnicities to intermarry, uh, yet he loved her and married her. But if my family tree was recorded in the Bible, it's possible that even though there's 10 generations between us, it could say that Israel friend begat Matt friend. It could say that. And so it's hard to tell exactly how many years are between, again, because we're not always sure of the relationship. But we can be sure of this. There is no agreement or definitive answer as to the age of the earth. There are bright scientific minds on both sides of the fence and bright theological minds on both sides of the fence. We can ask God about it when we get to heaven, but in the meantime... We can show grace realizing that none of us truly knows the age of the earth. There's a second uh, negotiable, something that's not core, peripheral. We can debate it and discuss it in love. And that is that the length of the Genesis 1 days. The length of the Genesis 1 days. You say, well, Pastor Matt, doesn't the Bible say in Genesis 1 that God created in six days? Absolutely it does. God says in Genesis 1, God created in six days and he ceased or rested on the seventh. So I'm not here today to argue any particular side, but I just want to create, maybe shed some light on someone or a position different than yours, at least to give us some understanding of how godly people could disagree on this issue and still be gospel-loving, godly People. It all comes down to how we interpret Genesis 1 1 through Genesis 2 3. Basically, it's Genesis, the first chapter, and then three verses in the second chapter. Genesis 1 1 through Genesis 2 3. Here it is. In Hebrew, it is not written, that chapter is not written like a historical narrative. Historical narrative in the Hebrew easily is evidenced in verse 4. But Genesis 1-1 through 2-3 is written in Hebrew poetry. It's like an ancient poem or a hymn. There are many other parts of the Old Testament where we don't interpret dramatic poetry in a literal sense. Those who read Genesis 1 as more of a poem might quote the New Testament, and we've all met Christians, maybe there's even some in here today or some watching today, who take the position that in the New Testament it says that a day is as a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years is as a day. 
Now, those who take that position can actually point out the Hebrew word day, a number of instances throughout the Old Testament where it doesn't refer to a 24-hour period. But that brings us to the other side of the issue. There are many instances, just as many instances, where the word day in the Old Testament refers to a 24-hour period. And so those who take Genesis 1 literally in the sense that it's a 24-hour day say, hey, even though it's Hebrew poetry, we're still going to take it literally. And you can see how two gospel-loving people could debate the issue and still be well within the boundaries of the Bible. Long before Charles Darwin wrote his famous on his origin of species, men and women and theologians have come down on multiple sides of this issue. It is a blast to discuss. It's fun to debate in Christian love. But of course, again, God invites us to show grace. Then there's one more issue that I wanted to bring up today about what Christians sometimes disagree on, and that is animal insect, now stay with me, animal insect death before Adam and Eve's fall. Now before you think I'm totally a nerd, let me just explain why I think this is important mentioning. There is the question... Did anything, I didn't say anyone, anything die before Adam and Eve sinned? Did anything die before Adam and Eve sinned? If we say anything, there is debate. There's room for debate. It all depends on how we interpret Romans 5.12. If you're taking notes, you want to write down Romans 5.12. Romans 5.12 says, listen to the words, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because all have sinned. Now, there are some who take that verse to say that God tells us that Adam and Eve, when they sinned, that death passed upon everything. It passed upon the plant kingdom, the animal kingdom, uh, the insect kingdom, if that's a kingdom. It passed on everything. And so there was no death for anything prior to Adam and Eve's sin. There's another group of Christians who say, no, Romans 5.12 only applies to human beings. Adam and Eve were, we've already said this, the first human beings. And so Adam and Eve and, and their children and children, they died because of sin's punishment. They died spiritually, and then they died physically. But people on that side would say that it only applies to humans in context, Romans 5.12. Now you say, well, Pastor Matt, really is this a big issue? Let me tell you a story. Actually, in one of the churches that I've pastored in the last 18 years, I had a man come up to me and want to discuss whether or not Adam ever stepped on and squished an ant. No joke. And he said, if I believe that Adam, prior, prior to sin, ever stepped on and squished an ant, if I believe that that was true, he was going to leave my church and take his family with him. True story. So that's why I just feel like I need to declare 
that animal and insect death before Adam and Eve's fall is something we can discuss, we can debate, and we can disagree over. But it's not a core doctrine. It's not connected to the gospel. Why is it so important that we not overemphasize the wrong things? Well, the answer is simple. It goes back to our main point. The creation story is essential to the gospel story. I don't want us to ever emphasize something that we shouldn't be dogmatic about to the point that we forget and lose the emphasis on the gospel. You see, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, the gospel is of first importance. That's the literal translation. First importance. Well, in light of the creation story, what does God invite us to do? What is the Holy Spirit inviting us to do in light of what we do know to be true about the creation story? Number one, believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. I've already said it. The creation story is intrinsically tied to the gospel story. God created a world that was good, that was innocent. But sin broke the world. Sin broke all things. Adam and Eve's sin and our sin continues to break the world around us. We sin from without. We sin from within. You know the shame. I know the shame. What it feels like not only to, to know that we can't fully live up to God's law, but we can't even live up to our own laws. We can't even live up to the standards that we set for ourselves and for other people, let alone the standards that God has given and you see, I'm reminded back in the book of Genesis. Again, starting in chapter 2 and verse 4, it gets into historical narrative and begins to tell us a very true story of how God would come and meet with Adam and Eve and walk in the garden in the cool of the day. But in chapter 3, Adam and Eve chose to sin. And God one day came in the garden of Eden to look for Adam and Eve, and they were hiding. They were ashamed because they had disobeyed God. And from that point, their children and children's children, right on down to you and me, have violated the holiness of God, which is what makes John 3.16 so beautiful. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. The Creator became the Savior in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to redeem the creation that he had made by dying on a cross, by being buried, and by rising again the third day. The Bible says, Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Today, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, let me encourage you right where you are, to give your heart to Christ. Pray in your own words, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't save myself. I give my life to you. Forgive my sins. Change me from the inside out and make me a follower of Jesus. If you want to pray that prayer, if you decide today you want to commit your life to Christ, let me encourage you right there on the screen or on our website or on our uh, social media channels, just click the button, follow Jesus, follow Jesus. Or just send us a note and let us know, hey, I am deciding to follow Jesus. We'd love to privately connect with you, follow up with you confidentially and help you 
grow in your faith in Christ. But you see, the creation story is connected to the gospel story. Paul says so in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He says, just as God said in the book of Genesis, let there be light. Paul says that God the Father shines the light of Jesus Christ in our hearts the moment we put our faith in him. So if salvation is true, then creation must also be true. Number two, what does God want us to do with this message? Well, number two, major on the majors and minor on the minors. Major on the majors and minor on the minors. Now, throughout the church age, for the last 2,000 years, there have been a lot of discussions. There have been a lot of isms and schisms about various systems and and preferential matters, which you know all about uh, and I know all about. We still see it right in front of us every single year of our lives. But Jesus reminds us in Matthew 23, verses 23 through 26, again, all these verses are in your notes, that there are some matters of the Bible that are weightier than others. That's the actual word Jesus used, weightier matters of the law. In Romans 14 and 15, Paul tells the church to build unity around what is clearly dogmatically revealed in Scripture, but to give each other freedom over preferential issues and opinions. The church at Ephesus is a lot like, I believe, the church of 2020. Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus to the pastor, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, and he said this, I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations. And isn't that so true? rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. That's how Paul describes someone who's digging their heels in to try to prove that something is dogmatically true when the Bible doesn't say it's dogmatically true or there's room for interpretation Or the church for the last 2,000 years hasn't taken a dogmatic stand on that particular issue. Paul calls it meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. And these types of folks are certainly very confident about the things that they want to be dogmatic about. Paul goes on in the book of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, verse chapter 2. Keep reminding God's people of these things, Timothy. He says, hey, you want to be a good pastor? Keep reminding the people, because this is where we get hung up on our opinions. Most of the time, it's not our doctrines, it's our opinions. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value, and it only ruins those who listen. How many times has someone fallen away from the faith or left the church Because they they didn't know who was right and who was wrong, but there was quarreling over preferential issues. And he says, it only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, 
a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. And boy, does it. He finishes. We see this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. Those aren't my words. Those are God's words. Because you know they produce quarrels. Let me ask you, those of you who call Bible Center Church your home, will you join me in majoring on the majors? That's part of the reason we're doing our membership statement of faith, our new, this process, this rollout to create a more robust statement of faith around the core issues of the faith clearly revealed in the Scriptures. Number three, what what does God invite us to do? What do I want you to do? I want you to enjoy his creation. To enjoy his creation. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17 says, God richly provides us everything for our enjoyment. In other words, we can enjoy God by enjoying God's creation. Yes, we can enjoy God by coming to church. We should, being a part of the assembly. Uh, one way or the other. Yes, we enjoy God by reading our Bibles and praying, but we also enjoy God by just enjoying the creation that He has made. God created the colors we see, the music we hear, the food we taste, the fresh coffee we smell, the friends we enjoy. This fall, get out and enjoy something beautiful. Go for a drive. Go for a hike. Eat something delicious. Sit around a fire pit with friends or family and remind yourself that it's God who made it all possible. Enjoy his creation. And then lastly, number four, I want to encourage you to make things. Make things. We were designed to make things. It's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. God is the maker of all things, and in Genesis 1, he called Adam and Eve, and he calls you you and me still, to take dominion, to work with our hands, to use our brains to make things. You ever wondered why we enjoy making things? Well, even secular researchers in business psychology noted what they call the IKEA effect. The IKEA effect is based upon the fundamental human need to create things. The crucial point here is that the act of completing tasks provides an intrinsic level of human satisfaction. When instant cake mixes were introduced in the 1950s as part of a broader trend to simplify the life of Americans, it actually minimized manual labor in the kitchen And 1950s housewives were initially resistant. The mixes made cooking too easy. It made their labor and skill seem undervalued, one article says. So as a result, I never knew this, as a result, manufacturers changed the recipe to require you adding an egg or two to the mix, giving you the sense that you were still making the cake that you still had a part in the creation. 
Similarly, Build-A-Bear offers people the opportunity to pay an arm and a leg to buy a bear's arm and a leg. Cutting out production costs, but you like it more when you made it. I realize our church is filled with creative people. Our community, our valley is filled with creative people. Let me encourage you, use your gifts. Figure out what it is that you enjoy. If it's part of your work, then do it with all of your heart. If your work doesn't give you that kind of satisfaction, then take up a hobby. Find something you can do, something you can make for the glory of God. You say, Pastor Matt, why? Why should I believe the gospel? Why should I major on the majors? Why should I enjoy his creation? Why should I make things? It's simple because the creation story is essential to the gospel story. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com or check us out on social media. You can also join us in person for services on Thursday at 7 p.m. or Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m.